our studies in the book of Daniel. Um, I'm going to just seek to briefly and swiftly run over the uh, prophecy so far, as much as we have done, and then uh, deal with this eighth chapter which we have uh, read uh, this evening. You will know, as far as the outline, we're not going to go beyond that, just look at the outline. You will know that the book of Daniel is divided into two. There's the first six chapters, which are mainly uh, <coughs> historical narrative. And then there is the last six chapters, which are mainly prophetical. These, these two stand together in very real relationship. They are joined together. Um, the, we have, of course, the key to the whole book of Daniel is the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God in every way. And in the first six chapters, we see the sovereignty of God experienced in the service of the present. That is the correction of an idea which is so prevalent amongst us that the sovereignty of God is something essentially ethereal. That is, that the sovereignty of God belongs to theological treatises. It belongs to the realm of theology. Uh, it's not something that we can experience in our practical daily life. Now, it is a, a remarkable fact that one of the major prophetical books of the Old Testament should give half of its space to proving that the sovereignty of God should be and must be a practical experience in the service of the present. And consequently, we find the first six chapters of Daniel taken up with this whole question of experiencing the sovereignty of God. It is a question of the fusing of the frail, human vessels on the one side with the almightiness and the omnipotence and the greatness of God on the other. And these six chapters reveal to us the basis upon which the sovereignty of God can be linked up with our human frailty so that we bring the sovereignty of God to bear upon the situations and the circumstances of our life. Daniel was just one of the many captives that was taken to Babylon, and so were the three friends. There were many others of the, of the uh, noble ancestry uh, and birth that were taken uh, into Babylon. But this a book of Daniel deals with four of them, four who stood out from all the rest of God's children who were taken into captivity because of their attitude toward the Lord. And in Daniel chapter 1, you have the first lesson in this whole question of the sovereignty of God experienced in the service of the present. We entitled it Preparation for a Life of Service. 
You'll find that in Daniel chapter 1, preparation for a life of service. As we said then, this whole question of service, of prayer, of a prayer ministry, and of a life of true testimony in this world is bound up with our, often with our attitude to the Lord and particularly how our attitude is expressed in quite seemingly insignificant and small issues. Of course, the whole book of Daniel grows out of the attitude of the four to a question of what they ate and what they didn't. Uh, something which, as we said at the time, uh, they could have argued with many reasonable, logical, rational arguments uh, that uh, it, the best thing, surely, now that they were in Babylon, was to do what the rest of God's people were doing and let go of some of these regulations and laws that had belonged to the people of God in the Promised Land. But they didn't. And it was because these youngsters, and they were only in their mid-teens, these four youngsters, torn away, wrenched away from their families, torn away from all their relatives, and put into a heathen atmosphere of unbelievable luxury and uh, looseness in every way, these four, at the very beginning, took a firm stand. They would have preferred to have died at the beginning than to have compromised. And that reveals to us the basis, uh, the basis uh, for a life of true service. Every other part of the book of Daniel, whether it is in the remarkable deliverances that are recorded within it, or whether it is the remarkable visions and revelations that were given to Daniel, all came out of this simple attitude taken deliberately at the very beginning. If you go over to chapter 2, we find another very wonderful thing. What has happened? Four young people have become linked with the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, heaven itself, was now linked with four people on the earth. It didn't matter of all the rest of God's people, and of course not all of them were apostates, but it didn't matter if all the rest were in a compromised position. Heaven now was fused with four young people. And the first great step in preparation for the uh, realization of God's purpose was taken. Nebuchadnezzar is to be shown, <coughs> is to be shown in the most remarkable and significant way the sovereignty of God over world history. So you know the story, what happens, Nebuchadnezzar dreams a remarkable dream, and he decides on a course of action which he'd never before taken. Instead of telling all his wise men and dream interpreters uh, the dream and then asking them to interpret it, he would say to them, since they were so very clever, you tell me the dream that I dreamed, and then give me the interpretation also of it. <coughs> And uh, you know what happened. None of them could, and Nebuchadnezzar, being an absolute autocrat and despot, uh, ordered the execution of all. That may seem strange. It's not the least bit strange, actually, for any of you who know much about uh, the ancient uh, world. 
the execution was taking place when Ariokton's guard came to Daniel and the three who'd been at prayer, you remember, and asked them, uh, uh, they asked him rather what it was all about, and when he told them they asked leave for uh, a few days respite so that they might seek the Lord. They said they will bring the interpretation. Well, you know what happened? It's the key to it. Well, of course, we put a tremendous amount, naturally, upon the vision that was given and the interpretation of the vision. But the key lies in the attitude of the four. They got on their knees quietly in their own home and asked the Lord, who they said was omnipotent and sovereign, to reveal to them not only the dream which Nebuchadnezzar had had, but would he also give them the interpretation. Whilst the three prayed, the Lord revealed to uh, Daniel by the same way that he had spoken to the king in a dream of the night, he showed him exactly what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed and gave him the interpretation. The result was that Nebuchadnezzar learned the sovereignty of God over world history. For he then discovered something which inwardly he already uh, knew in some, some ways, as far as he himself was concerned, that with him there had been ushered in a new era of world history, which we today are still in. According to the scriptures, the what we call the times of the Gentiles was ushered in with Nebuchadnezzar, and we today in the 20th century are still within that era of time, the times of the Gentiles. But the most wonderful thing of all that Nebuchadnezzar was shown was that God was not only sovereign over the rise, the length, and the end, the conclusion, of each world empire and its successor, but also in the end, the stone not made with hands, cut out of the mountain, would smash the whole thing, the whole thing to smithereens. And then that kingdom which is of God would come in forever. But that was not, that was only one step. You know in Daniel chapter 3 you get the next step when uh, uh, the king Nebuchadnezzar is shown practically the sovereignty of God. It's one thing for an unsaved man or woman to suddenly see the sovereignty of God as it were at a distance. To see, to recognize that God is almighty. That God does determine the course of events. That everything, even wicked men and evil systems, are in the, as it were, the hollow of his hand. It's one thing to see that and to recognize it. It's another thing to be brought into practical touch with the sovereignty of God. Many, many men and women uh, who are not the Lord's believe that there is an almighty God and that he determines things. The very fact that he's almighty means that he can and does determine things. He can... Uh, in his foreknowledge and in his almightiness, he can uh, arrange things, he can determine things, he can ordain things, he can conclude things. But it's an altogether different thing to be brought right <coughs> practically into touch with the sovereignty of God. How did it happen? You know, in Daniel chapter 2, the wonderful story of how he raised an image of himself and started a kind of state congregational worship. Many kings before had, uh, had built images themselves and so on, but no one had commanded there to be a kind of congregational worship 
of the day. There was a band, an orchestra, which whenever it played, everyone had to prostrate themselves upon the ground and worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar. It was of gold. It was a long, uh, cylindrical type of image uh, that was raised in the plain of Dura. And uh, that was all that Nebuchadnezzar required. Where Daniel was, we don't know. But there were the three. <clears throat> and the three refused to worship it. And you know what happened. They were given a chance, which was very gracious, Nebuchadnezzar, to relent and to worship uh, the image, but they refused, and the result was that they were put into a fiery furnace. They were put into a furnace of fire, which was one of the means of execution uh, in the Babylonian Empire. But when they got into the fire, a fourth appeared. Not before, but when they moved into the fire, a fourth appeared uh, with them. Like unto the Son of the God, said Nebuchadnezzar. Who is this? Did we not throw three men into the fire? Where has the fourth come, whose appearance is like unto the son of the gods? You know the story. How Nebuchadnezzar not only had the, uh, the three brought back out, but published a state decree that everywhere, in all his domain, men ought to give honor and glory to the god of these three. Nebuchadnezzar had now discovered that practically... <coughs> There was a thing called the sovereignty of God. In touching these three, he found that he had touched a government bigger and greater than his own. He had touched a kingdom which was far superior to his, her, to his own, which could not only counteract his commands and decrees, but could in actual fact reverse them. Nebuchadnezzar then was brought one stage nearer. When you come to the fourth chapter of Daniel, it's one of the one most wonderful chapters actually in Daniel, and one that I feel not enough uh, uh, precedence is given to. We have Nebuchadnezzar's experience of the sovereignty of God in his own life and his conversion. You know this, this chapter four of Daniel is a testimony. It's written by Nebuchadnezzar. It is his testimony of how... He has step by step come into a knowledge of the God of Daniel. Beginning with his own uh, uh, heathen background and circumstances and his own natural attitude to everything. He traces for us the course of events. First he had had that dream and he had seen the sovereignty of God over everything. So different to the images which he had been brought up amongst and were part of his life. Then he found the sovereignty of God vested in these three that he tried to execute and found he couldn't. And that had brought him into a, a practical touch with the God of Daniel. But now, you know, he had another dream. And this time Daniel came in. Daniel was a great friend of Nebuchadnezzar and was very troubled. He didn't want to tell him the interpretation of the dream. It was so terrible. But Nebuchadnezzar told him to tell him. And you know how he told him the interpretation of the dream and besought him, besought him to mend his ways and turn to the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar, because of his arrogance and pride, was going to be struck with a form of mental sickness or illness that we call lycanthropy. 
He was going to take the very, become as it were, the very, take on all the characteristics of a beast. It's a form of mental illness. We don't see it, of course, that people are in mental institutions. But it's when people growl like a beast and go on all fours like a beast and behave just like a creature. Of course, people don't believe such things exist, but I think anyone who's done any mental illness will tell you that such things do exist. That such a thing is called lycanthropy, which is the strange kind of illness which makes a person act and behave exactly as a beast, even to the actual uh, copying of their cries and growls and strange and weird and unearthly. Nebuchadnezzar was smitten with this, and you know that in the ancient East and today in the East, uh, any mental illness is looked upon with a strange kind of awe. <coughs> People will not touch it. And he was flung out of house and home and may, literally made his home with the beasts. So until, as the scripture says, his, his nails became like eagles' talons and his hair long like an animal's. And then at the end of it, he turned to the Lord. In his wretchedness and in his despair, he cried to the God of Daniel. And immediately, his sanity had returned to him and he was restored, and Nebuchadnezzar was converted. When you come to Daniel chapter 5, you will um, then discover uh, the sovereignty of God. Nebuchadnezzar is now dead, and we now find the sovereignty of God in the recalling and promotion of Daniel uh, at the end of Belshazzar's reign. Why is this chapter in? Why don't we skip this? Why don't we skip it and go on to the reign of Darius, which seems to be much more to the point. Why put all this in? Is it just because it's an interesting story? You know the story. Belshazzar had a great feast. They were what, not uncommon things in those days. And in their drunkenness, they called for the vessels of the house of God in Jerusalem, which were in the treasury, to be brought so they could drink out of them. And as they did so, a hand, wrote on the plaster of the wall above the great candlestick. Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. Henceforth thy kingdom <coughs> is divided and given to the, per, uh, the, the, per, the Medes and the Persians. <coughs> you remember the commotion that was caused, the way Daniel was brought in to the instigation of the Queen Mother? A very interesting fact I, I pointed out to you, the Queen Mother was no party to the... Uh, um, revelries at all, and we wonder sometimes what influence Daniel had not only on Nebuchadnezzar but upon the Queen Mother. But it was through her uh, influence that Daniel was brought in, and Daniel, who was now an old man, something probably in the region of 84 at least, um, then uh, rebuked them first for drinking from the vessels of the temple of God, and then you know the story he interpreted the uh, writing on the wall to them. But the point was this. Belshazzar said, whoever interprets the writing on this wall will be third in the kingdom. Third in the kingdom. His father was the first. He, Belshazzar, was the second. Whoever interpreted the reading would be third. Daniel interpreted it. And although it was not to the liking of Belshazzar or the others, that night, that very evening, he was made 
uh, third in the kingdom. That night, Belshazzar was slain. A little later, when the armies of Cyrus marched on into Arabia, uh, his father also was taken and deposed. Daniel was left solely in charge when Darius was left in charge of Babylon by Cyrus. Uh, it was Daniel who was in charge of the administration. And not just merely a man called Daniel, but a Jew. And the Persians, with their attitude to everything, felt a far greater kinship to the Jew than to anyone else. They wouldn't have trusted a Babylonian, Chaldean, uh, in charge. But here was Daniel first in the kingdom. Belshazzar was gone. His father would soon be gone. Daniel was supreme in the kingdom. That's the way the sovereignty of God had engineered things in order to realize his purpose and effect events. Then you know what happens. In chapter 6, you have the remarkable story of Daniel's prayer ministry. Of course, if you didn't have Daniel chapter 9, you'd never know what it was all about. It just says that he was praying three times a day. And you would get from that that it was his regular habit to pray three times a day, which it very probably was. But from Daniel chapter 9, we discover that at that particular time, he had a great ministry in which he was engaged. And it was this. He had discovered by the books, and particularly by the prophecies of Jeremiah, that God had ordained and determined 70 years of captivity. And he had discovered how, I do not know except by the Holy Spirit, that when the 70 years began, he discovered that. And therefore, he knew that the 70 years was about to finish. And therefore, he got on his knees and began to pray the purpose of God into being. Now, doesn't that reveal to us an attitude of the sovereignty of God that most Christians today just haven't got? Isn't it true to say that most Christians, their attitude to the sovereignty of God is this, that if God is going to do something, we all sit down in armchairs and just say, well, isn't that wonderful? If God is going to save so-and-so, well, praise the Lord, he's going to save so-and-so. God is so great, God is so almighty, isn't it wonderful? And we all just sit down. Or if the Lord says he's going to do so and so and so and so, we say, well, isn't that wonderful? He's going to do so and so and so and so. Perhaps he said to us as a company that he will do this and he will do that. And so we say, oh, don't worry about it. It will all come. It will all come. He said it's going to come. God is absolutely sovereign. We hear such a lot about the sovereignty of God. We believe he's sovereign. It will come. But you see, Daniel found out by the books, in particular by the prophecies of Jeremiah, that 70 years was determined. When the 70 years was up, the people would go back. Well, he didn't sit down and say, well, now then, if I start praying, particularly now a decree has been made that no one should pray except to King Darius, for one month, this is going to cause trouble. Sovereign, he's put it in the prophecies of Jeremiah. He won't be behind time. The Lord will be there right on the dot, and he'll do it exactly as he means to do it. But he doesn't need my prayer. No. Daniel got hold of the true experience. Shall we put it this way? The, he had an experience, practically, of the sovereignty of God, which taught him that God wants co-workers in the uh, realizing of his purpose. 
And so, with a knowledge of the sovereignty of God, Daniel gets on his knees and starts to pray. Well, you know the satanic attack, the device the enemy uses. These, there are 120 satraps, or governors. Over that, there's a council, a little privy council, as it were, who's in charge of the 120, who are over the provinces of the whole empire. Uh, there were three raised to control the 120. Now, Darius was so impressed by Daniel, so, so tremendously and deeply impressed by this man, Daniel, obviously by his, his absolute peerless work that he wants to create a special position over the Privy Council and make a kind of vice-regency, something along that line, which Daniel would occupy, and of course arouses the jealousy of the others. And they know the only way they can remove Daniel is by, uh, by a very simple method uh, of uh, getting a decree passed by the law of the Medes and the Persians, which ought to have not, sealed and settled, and uh, it is that no one should pray for a month. Now, I think they knew something about Daniel, which I'm afraid the world doesn't think much about today, can't find uh, in us. They knew that whatever happened, Daniel wasn't going to let go of his prayer ministry. They'd seen a determination in that man, Daniel. He was on something. Perhaps they didn't know what it was. Or on the other hand, perhaps he told them. I don't know. But uh, they certainly knew there was a determination in the old man. And he was engaged in something which he evidently thought was far more superior to anything to do with the government or administration of an empire, great as it was. So they thought, well, catch him on that. And they did catch him on that. And you know the result? He was found in the lion's den. That's where it ended him. Even Darius's love and sympathy and pleading and seeking to rescue him could do nothing. And you know, it looks to me, from what I can see, that Darius spent the night in prayer for the first time in his life. Uh, from at least the implications of scripture. He didn't have any music, musical instruments brought to him nor anything else, but spent the night, it says, in fasting. So it did something in Darius. It did not, nothing in anyone else. And you know the answer, how it happened. In the morning they found Daniel perfectly well and alive. The beasts hadn't even touched him. And what was the result? What was the end? The end was a very simple one. Those accusers, not by Daniel's instigation at all, nor because he wanted it, but all his accusers, those who hated him so much, were themselves thrown to the lions and eaten. Or whether we find that a rather ferocious story, a brutal story or not, there's one point which comes out very, very clearly. It is that evil always destroys itself in the long run. As I said, give the devil enough chain and he will destroy himself in the end. He will where God destroys him by giving him just enough chain to hang himself. And so it is here with Daniel, when you come to the end of Daniel chapter 6, you find this whole question of the sovereignty of God experienced in the service of the present wonderfully exemplified. For here is Daniel in a specially created position, the greatest, the most authoritative, the most influential position that any man could have next to the king himself. Daniel's there. So when Cyrus comes back from his victorious and triumphant campaigns, back to take over from Darius, who does he find there? Cyrus, of course, was a young man. And he comes back to find a godly, absolutely trustworthy man 
in charge of the administration of the whole empire. And so it was. I don't know whether Josephus is correct in saying that it was Daniel, I think it was Josephus who says it, it was Daniel who pointed out to Cyrus that he'd been mentioned by name by the prophet Isaiah 200 years previously. But whatever happened, Cyrus now found uh, himself in the position of being one <coughs> who was going to be used of God to uh, realize the purpose of God. And so you have the great decree which sends the people back to the land. Well, that's the sovereignty of God experienced in the service of the present. I don't think there can be anything more wonderful for us, even now in the 20th century, when this goes back so many hundreds, well, thousands of years, uh, it still is of great comfort to us to remember that whatever systems are in charge, however evil men are, uh, if we are absolutely faithful, God can do the most unbelievable things. In spite of antagonism, in spite of hatred, in spite of everything which is militantly anti-God and anti-Christ, he can, through the faithfulness of his people, because they have been, through their faithfulness, linked to his sovereignty, he is able to not only keep them and deliver them, but make them instrumental, instrumental, in effecting and realizing his purpose using the very evil systems themselves to further his own interests and his people. When you come to Daniel chapter 7, well, you've come to the next great uh, and the last section of Daniel, and we have entitled that whole section, the last six chapters of Daniel, The Sovereignty of God Seen Over the Nations in World History. The Sovereignty of God Seen Over the Nations in World History. You will remember that these visions, as we pointed out to you on the board, these visions in this book... Um, are linked together. Each one takes some feature or features of the proceeding and expands it in greater detail. <coughs> Daniel 2 there, you've got Daniel 7, you have Daniel 8. When you come to Daniel uh, 10, 11, and 12, which is one series of visions together from 10 to 12, you will find again it is this little horn that is taken up. Just as here you have this expanded here, and so this expands uh, uh, the vision in Daniel 7, so in the last chapters of Daniel you have got again uh, an expansion. Uh, this is a method in the book of Revelation as well, so it's an important method because both these uh, scriptures are different from others in that they are what we call technically apocalyptic scripture. Um, then another point we need to remember is this, that uh, we find in these visions uh, that whilst they are dealing often with events, many of which, and some would say all of which, have been fulfilled. They have also, um, they have also, by the Holy Spirit, as it were, transferred value. Um, 
for instance, the history of a man like Antiochus Epiphanes is taken up as a type of Antichrist. And we discover as we go through that this terrible figure who is going to dominate world history uh, at the end of the times of the Gentiles uh, is, after all, uh, prefigured in a man like Antiochus and, of course, others. You'll find that again and again. And that is why in every one of the visions in, from De in the last half of Daniel 6, you will find that they are referred to the time of the end. Of course, again, there are some scholars who say that the time of the end is not the time of the end, but is a time of the end. And they would like to, some would like to relegate it to other uh, terminal points, shall we say, in God's dealings uh, with his people uh, and so on. But whether that can be justly, so justly done, is, um, I, in my mind at any rate, a very real point in question. Um, it seems to me that whilst there may have been a fulfillment of many of these visions already, the fact that the angel in his interpretation so often refers them and shuts them up to the time of the end seems, as it were, at any rate to me, to speak of the far future. Particularly, by, uh, is it uh, a fact to be noted that in the book of Revelation, many of these features are again taken up. And we discover that even if they've had a fulfillment uh, in the past, as far as the book of Revelation is concerned, history is going to repeat itself. Perhaps in a deeper, more terrible way, but nevertheless, there's going to be a repetition uh, of this at the very end. So that's something that we have got to take uh, note of. And then uh, another thing about the visions that I did mention was very simply that you must always keep the theme in mind because there's so much wealth of detail and so much else that will so completely um, bury us uh, un unless we keep the theme uh, of these chapters in mind. The theme is the sovereignty of God in world history seen uh, in world history. That's most important. Whether we think that they've all been fulfilled, these prophecies, or whether we think they all refer to the very time at the end, which some other scholars do, or whether we think it's a mixture of the, of the two, there's one thing it does not alter. It does not alter what the, it teaches us. And I think that is the thing that has been forgotten and overlooked by so many who have sought to uh, interpret uh, these chapters. The theme is the sovereignty of God seen in, over the nations in world history. Now in chapter 7 uh, uh, of Daniel, we have already seen um, uh, the uh, vision which was given to Daniel and we have already spoken about it. That amazing vision when he saw in quick succession out of the sea four beasts arise. The first was a lion with eagle's wings. That doesn't need much interpretation for anyone who knows anything about Babylonian or Assyrian history. For it speaks immediately. It is the very symbol of Babylon. The great lion with the eagle's wings. You must surely have seen sometimes pictures of it. 
and then it is followed by the great bear, great ponderous creature, with three ribs in its mouth, uh, heaving itself up on one side. It is followed by a leopard with four heads and four wings. Uh, now these creatures, the lion and the eagle, or what we call the king of the beasts and birds of prey, the bear is the second, we always, in mythology and legend, always the second to the um, lion. And the leopard, of course, is inferior to the uh, bear, but nevertheless a ferocious creature, which is marked for its agility and its speed. This is followed by the fourth great creature, which is absolutely diverse, according to uh, Daniel, to all the others. Now, in the interpretation we are clearly uh, given to understand what it is. The first is Babylon, we know that. Then there shall be another kingdom. We know what the other kingdom was. It was the Medes and the Persians. It is to be followed by a third, which we know already. It is the Greek Empire, which is to be followed by the fourth, which we know also is the Roman. Now, the interesting thing is this, that the um, scriptures say that we of the 20th century are still within the era of the Roman uh, Empire or the Roman civilization. And it is a most instructive and interesting fact that a lot of our life does find its origins within the Roman uh, structure of society, uh, law, Roman law, and much else. We have borrowed a tremendous amount from Rome. Now, it is... Whereas in Daniel 2, we have the whole of world history just given generally, and no particular part dwelt upon more than the other. In Daniel chapter 7, it is the fourth beast, which is the Roman Empire, the last one. The one in which we are told the Lord Jesus will not only come the first time, but he will return. He will return again. All the work of the Lord Jesus in his redemption on the cross and in his gathering out of the people from this world will take place within the duration of what is called in scripture the Roman uh, civilization or um, empire, kingdom, whatever you like to call it. Now that kingdom is dwelt upon in Daniel 7 and it's presented to us in three phases. First, its initiation, when it is shown to be a beast which is diverse, terrible, uh, dreadfully strong, and then uh, we are shown the next phase, which is a ten kingdoms, ten horns, and then we're shown the last stage of the Roman Empire, which is to be the little horn. And I can't stay tonight because I'm just trusting this is all that I'm seeking to do this evening, is to revive in your minds and renew in your minds what we have already uh, covered and said. But he does say in Daniel 7 that the course of European history will be on the one side a course of despotism, and on the other side, a course of constitutionalism. It is represented by the iron on the one side and by the clay on the other. 
And European history has seen truly what we can call despotic authority, for we have had dictatorship after dictatorship, and the most unbelievable cruelty practiced in the long, long centuries of European history, for anyone who knows anything about it. And on the other side, we have got what we call democracy, which is the product of European history. It has not come from anywhere else but European history. But these two things, whilst all the time seeking to combine and be wedded, cannot. And the most interesting thing of all it says about the, these ten horns is that they will seek to unify the whole of their um, domains by intermarriage. But they will never succeed. And again, I remember one of the things that I used to be most interested about, and I was all, always loved history, but the thing I always used to love most was the stories of the uh, matches uh, that the kings of Europe and the queens of Europe were forever seeking to bring about. You, of course, surely all know about the Habsburgs and the, uh, oh, the long list of different people with all their desire to try and unify by the marriage of the royal houses of Europe. Even our own royal house is a tremendous conglomeration of blood of the different royal houses of Europe. This seeking to somehow or other bring about a unity of Europe through marriage. But it, the scripture itself said, though they seek to do it, they will never, they will never be able to attain it. The last stage of European history is contained within the story here of the little horn, which finally arises and which seeks to unify, it takes the territory of at least three of the previous kingdoms and unifies them into one, and then waxes very great and strong. And that is what we know in the New Testament as Antichrist. You know the, what Daniel chapter 7 teaches. I don't think there's need to spend more time upon that. It shows us the greatest thing of all, that though the end will be a terrible anti-Christian system, and tribulations such as the world has never known, and particularly the Lord's people have never known, condensed, we don't know, into what space of time, uh, the end is that the kingdom is given to God's Son Forever. Now, when you come to Daniel chapter 8, which we have not done, uh, we have read it together this evening, we are breaking new ground. And from this chart 4, we can see the parallel of the ram to the bear and the he-goat to the leopard. The ram has two horns, and the last horn is higher than the first. And this corresponds with the bear who is raised up on one side. He has, he pushes westward, northward, southward, which corresponds to the three ribs which are in the bear's mouth. And then we have the he-goat that has one horn which suddenly is broken and gives place to four conspicuous horns, which is, of course, represented in the leopard by the four heads. And then uh, those four horns give way, and out of one of them grows the little horn. Um, in Daniel chapter 8, we have the course 
of Persia and Greece represented, with particular emphasis on Greece. The history of Persia is given in very brief and simple form, but Greece is dwelt upon. It was during, um, it was of course here, uh, during this particular uh, reign of um, Antiochus um, that we had the terrible period. Uh, just wait, I've got something mixed up there. Yeah, sorry. Um, in the Daniel chapter 8, we have got the course of, his, of the history of Greece and of Persia uh, given to us, defined, but with, with particular emphasis um, upon Greece. It is uh, the history of Greece which is dwelt upon for a particular reason. Daniel 7, whilst covering the ground of Daniel 2, expanded in greater detail the career of the fourth kingdom, the last. Daniel 8, whilst covering the ground of the two middle kingdoms, that is, the bear and the leopard, now takes hold uh, of the little horn, which actually we find in Daniel 7 in the fourth beast. But here in Daniel 8, we've discovered uh, that this it is details concerning this little horn that are given and expanded. We have already been introduced to this title, a little horn, in Daniel 7. Now it is to be expanded and more detail is to be given to us. And although this little horn refers primarily to Antiochus Epiphanes, it surely points to the Antichrist of the end time. If you will look at your Bible, at Daniel uh, chapter uh, 8, and you will look at verse, uh, if you will just look at verse 17, the last part, for the vision belongeth to the time of the end. And then if you look at verse 19 in the last part, for it belongeth to the appointed time of the end. Now if you look at verse 26, the last part, for it belongeth to many days to come. I'm very interested in this. Why didn't the Holy Spirit say again uh, in the end, uh, for it belongs to the time of the end? I believe it is for a simple reason. Primarily, it referred in one sense to many days to come. That was to the course of a particular king in Greek history. But we are to understand that here defined for us is something of the character and the nature of the one who is to appear at the end of world history. That, I think, is most important to an understanding of this chapter. Now, there are one or two things to note as we look at it. First, we must note the remarkably apt symbols of the ram and the he-goat. 
Um, I don't know, of course, how much you know about either Greece or Persia. But one of the most remarkable things is this, that Persia from antiquity has always been represented by the ram, even today. The ram with its great curled horn uh, is uh, the uh, symbol of the Persian royal house. It is the symbol of Persia. And there is a gem uh, that if any of you want to see, I'll show you a picture of, which interests me very greatly, which, uh, which was cut after Alexander conquered Persia and encouraged his nobles, his Greek nobles, to marry Persian wives, trying somehow to unify the two kingdoms. There was an amazing gem cut which has two heads. On the one side, there is the head of the ram cut into the gem, and on the other side, is where the back side of the head of the ram is the head of a one-horned goat. Now, it is also a most interesting fact that from the very beginning, the symbol of Macedonia has always been the one-horned goat. It was on their coins, some of their coins, I can show you pictures of that if some of you want to see it. And it was also an emblem that was on many other things. Sometimes on Greek shields they had the head of a goat. It was the symbol of Ma Macedon. And, of course, what we call today the Aegean Sea is just simply Greek for the Goat Sea. Those of you who remember Greek from school, it just means the Goat Sea. The Aegean Isles, the Aegean Sea. The goat, see. The goat has always been uh, uh, linked with Macedonia, uh, with Greece, in the same way that um, the ram has been uh, linked with Persia. So it is remarkably apt to find that these two symbols are now taken up, and we are told, we are told the interpretation, the ram speaks of Persia, the kingdom of Persia, the Persian Empire, and the he-goat uh, represents the Greek Empire, which is to succeed the Persian. Alexander the Great is absolutely famous. He was the one, of course, who unified the small, petty Greek states into one unified uh, body. He was absolutely remarkable. And this is one of the most interesting evidences for the genuineness and the authenticity of uh, Scripture, that Daniel was able to define for us the course of Greek history in its most important and formative stages by telling us first there was one conspicuous or notable horn. Alexander the Great was a remarkable man. At 16, he was a governor, provincial governor. At 18, he was a successful general. He had already defeated an army that had set out to destroy his father's kingdom. When he was uh, literally uh, only in his 20s, he had destroyed. You must, of course, I'm sure, know some of these facts. Alexander the Great is famous above everything else for his speedy, streamlined army. He didn't believe in bulk. 
He believed in quality. And he has come down to us as one of the greatest military uh, strategists of ancient history. Uh, whereas up to that time it had been bulk, strength, ferocity, which had been the means by which uh, nations and countries were overthrown, now Alexander uh, brought in what to, at that time was almost an innovation. Uh, he cut down his army, uh, streamlined it, put everything upon speed. Uh, the speed with which they could get over the territory and attack the other army. And one of the most remarkable facts of all were his charges, which he always led. When the great battle took place, the first great battle, which resulted in Persian defeat, which was the first uh, step to the complete overthrow of Persia, the way Alexander won the battle was by an unbelievable cavalry at which he headed, uh, at which when the Persians saw it with all their superior rank, they brought 600,000 men, so history tells us, out against Alexander's 35,000. But it was the charge of uh, uh, Alexander's crack cavalry regiment that reduced Persia to jitters, and uh, they fled. Um, now, that's very interesting. Because if you read Daniel 8, it gives you the story of the overthrow of Persia. And it tells you one or two things. In symbolic and figurative language, it tells us here you have a great uh, cumbersome ram. It pushes westward. It pushes northward. It pushes um, eastward or south. And then um, uh, you've got, uh, over against this ponderous creature, you have a he-goat. Now it tells you here that the he-goat, it's, it's hardly touched. Without touching the ground, it sped across. Sped across the ground without touching, uh, without touching it. It, went, it came across the whole face of the earth. The whole idea is speed, lightning speed. And then rush the ground. And you know the result. Broke the horns of the ram by its speed and its uh, intensity of attack. And the battle was over. Well, that is what we learn of Alexander. Here we have him. The man who really is the great uh, architect of what we know as uh, Hellenism. There, of course, Greek history began long before Alexander. But it was left to Alexander to unify everything, and by his unbelievable personality and uh, genius uh, to conquer the whole, not only the Persian Empire, but carry Greek influence right across almost to the Ganges. Now, if you want to, to prove what I say, I've got some atlases upstairs, modern atlases. He was, as I've said, 16 when he was a provincial governor, 18 when he had won his first major uh, battle. He was 22 at the first defeat of Persia when he led 35,000 against an army of 600,000. He was only 24 when he led the, per, the Greek army, again, of only 35,000 against the whole might 
of Persia. Of course, how much you can put on the numbers, I don't know, but the historians have told us that uh, Darius, the last of the Persian kings, mustered a million men uh, to try and whatever he did, stop Alexander, but he didn't. Alexander beat him, and he was only 24 uh, years of age. He founded, Ale he founded Alexandria in Egypt, uh, which was to become one of the greatest centers of Hellenism and of Greek culture, and the, uh, what should we say, the home of the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is so valuable, one used in the New Testament. Um, he, were, he founded that when he was only 25 years of age. Everywhere uh, he left his mark. He was a truly notable and conspicuous man, as scripture predicted him. At his death, the empire uh, broke up into many factions. The moment he died at the age of 32, um, uh, the whole of the great empire broke up into petty factions, warring with each other. But after the Battle of Ipsus in 301 BC, four notable leaders emerged. These four are Cassander, and then Lysimachus, and then Ptolemy, and then Seleucus. These are the four great notable leaders that emerged from uh, the... Uh, death of Alexander. The great horn was broken, four conspicuous horns rose up in its place. Cassander took Macedon and Greece, the Symmachus took Thrace and western Bithynia and most of that area, Ptolemy took Egypt, Cyrene, uh, Palestine and Seleucus took most of the eastern Asia, what, was, what remained of Asia Minor. Then we're told that when these laws, how scripture just, just briefly dismisses them, we're then told that uh, their little horn arises. A horn of littleness at the beginning, from little beginnings, insignificant, arises. Actually, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, uh, came from a line of the Seleucid uh, kings of Asia Minor, and he was the... He, his capital was Antioch, what we know as Antioch. And at the beginning, no one took much notice of this. He was one of a long line of, of Antiochuses, and uh, it didn't seem that there was anything peculiar or wonderful about him. But in Scripture, Antiochus has, has become the very type of Antiochus. Whereas these other men had, in a general way, been anti-God, at least anti-what uh, came from the people of God, Antiochus deliberately set out to destroy every vestige of uh, the worship of the Lord. Of course, it was all quite plausible. You have his career from verse 23 to verse 26, if you want to study it in your own time. His whole policy was plausible and good from his point of view. What was it? He was a Greek. And he uh, envisaged a revival and a renewal of Alexander's empire. 
empire, and the way he wanted to do it was what Alexander had wanted to do, unify it with Greek customs, the Greek language, uh, Greek everything. Somehow, he wanted to reduce the people of God to becoming Greeks. And when he came up against uh, the uh, Jerusalem and the temple, he found himself up against an insurmountable problem because the people of God, the Jews, were refused whatever happened to succumb or to compromise uh, with Antiochus. The result was that because he found that these people alone of his whole domain were frustrating his purpose, he set out militantly to destroy them. And if you want to read the records of those terrible days, which are called in Scripture the terrible days of tribulation, such as were never known, you want to read the story in the book of the Maccabees in the Apocrypha. There you have the story of the faithfulness of God's people and what they did. Everything was banned. No one was allowed to keep the Sabbath. They were made to work on the Sabbath. No one was allowed to be circumcised. When two mothers had their children circumcised, they were hanged publicly till they died and their babies were decapitated and hung round their necks as public examples. This was the kind of thing which was only a small little sideline of all that happened in those terrible, bloodthirsty, cruel days of Antiochus he destroyed the, the walls of Jerusalem, which had been so carefully built by Nehemiah. He put herds of swine, it sounds almost funny, but it's terrible really, herds of swine he had kept in the temple. And the most terrible thing, which is called the abomination which maketh desolate, was a huge sow, which he carefully fattened up, finally had led up onto the altar, slain, and then the blood of the sow was poured all over the holy place, on the candlestick, upon the old golden altar of incense, on the showbread table, taken into the holies, sprinkled over the, over the law. This was the abomination which maketh desolate, for as you know, no good Jew would ever touch a pig, let alone eat it. And uh, that was only the beginning of those terrible days. Uh, in which he literally, by every means possible, tried to destroy the Jewish calendar of feasts and days, sought to destroy the worship of God's people, so that when the herds of swine were brought into the temple, every God-fearing priest and Levite fled. And the temple was allowed to go to rack and ruin. The final and most terrible insult of all was when an image of Zeus was put upon the altar, uh, uh, and, and the altar was Hellenized. Then the courtyards were given over to immoral rites, such as Corinth and Phoenicia had known for many, many years. This was the final and most terrible desecration that God's people had ever been subjected to. It was also the point of the great and very faithful uprising of the Maccabees. You must yourself read those stories if you want to go into that. But there was a long battle, and the result in the end was that uh, the people of God came through.
If you read very carefully, you will find this period of tribulation is given as 2,300 days. Now, if you want to work that out, the Jewish year is 360 days to a year. Please work out 2,300 days and you will find it comes to six and a half years. Now, here's an interesting fact. In 171 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes began his onslaught on the people of God and he died in 165 BC, at which point ended his, the tribulation of God's people. Six and a half years. So Daniel predicted that for 2,300 days, evenings and mornings, uh, the worship of God's people would be interrupted, and all these terrible abominations and de desecration would take place. But it was, they were told, it would come to a sudden end. For he had risen up against the Prince of Princes, the Messiah himself, Christ himself, and suddenly, not by human hand, he would be destroyed. And so it was that Antiochus died suddenly, and the tribulation of God's people was over. Well, that's the history of the Daniel chapter 8. But what can we learn? What can we One great lesson. We learn from this chapter something of the character, the nature, and the methods of Antichrist and his reign at the end. Now, there are some scholars who say we also know the origin of Antichrist. For some would have us believe that from this Daniel chapter 8, we know the area of the world in which Antichrist will arise. But I don't know about that. I leave that. I think one has to be cautious about that point. But we do know from this chapter the character we can expect, the nature of his reign and rule, and the methods which he will use. To the world they will seem plausible, but to God's people they will be an absolute contradiction denial everything and anything that they have ever stood for. It may be that this terrible man in the end with this mark, this symbolic mark which we know in Scripture as 666 will seek to somehow unify everything and everyone. And for the true child of God, walking in faithfulness to the Lord, it will not be possible. So we can learn something. And nor is it strange that Antiochus becomes a type of Antichrist. For as we have already said, history repeats itself again and again. Nero is repeated again and again. Hitler is, in my estimation, only a repetition in a more terrible way of Nero. And so we can go on into many others who history repeats itself. And as the course of world history takes shape, we must not think that things are getting better. The last 50 years have shown us that. On the one side, increase and advance. On the other side, just the same old humanity, dressed up in new forms. And so we've got to remember that just as the end time is going to be the consummation of all that has preceded it in these four world empires, it'll all be there. On the one side, nobleness, nobility, on the one side, beauty, 
On the one side, greatness of building, advance of knowledge, and so much. On the other side, cruelty, hardness, and so on. Also, I think we can learn from this that Antichrist will be the personification of all that has ever been anti-God and anti-Christ in personalities in world history. The end of the world is called in Revelation, is symbolically given, represented as 666. The figure, the number of man, uh, symbol, uh, sort of, uh, in its final form. And so it is that uh, we must, from these chapters, learn that the Antichrist himself will be, on the one hand, a plausible figure, uh, 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 someone who has a policy which is strong and definite and which will win many, many hearts to him. But on the other hand, it will be something unbelievably terrible. Some of us know, from the way we've, had, we've talked with people, how in the early days of the rise of Mussolini and of Hitler, so many, even of God's people, were drawn after them. The strength of the people, of the personality, the influence, and in many things, the advantages that they brought of reunification, of building schemes, and so much so, and as one dear Christian old gentleman, once German brother, once put it to me, too late we woke up, too late we discovered the real nature of this uh, government and of this man. So it will be uh, in the end. Uh, we have to learn from this. And we have got to see that this period of tribulation uh, which will take place is six and a half years. It's short of seven again, just like three and a half. One time, two times, half a time. So now you have six and a half times. It's not a complete end. It stops short. The time is shortened. Otherwise, the elect themselves couldn't be saved. The time is shortened. Otherwise, it would be too terrible altogether. And whilst this vision is intended to focus attention upon Antichrist himself, it's a great comfort to note that in verse 25, his collision with Christ ends with his destruction. The most comforting thing of all from Daniel chapter 8 is this, the rise of Antichrist, the duration of his reign, uh, and the length of his system, his power, and his end are all determined beforehand by God. This is what was given to Daniel, not only for God's people in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, and in the time later of Herod, when again God's city, the same things happened all over again, desecration, the abomination of the desolate was set up, and all of it, but I believe it's been given for us in the last days, should we be in them, that when these things come to pass, we may take courage and know that whoever it is, whatever the system is, whoever the man is, his rise, the duration of his reign and his power and his end 
are determined by God. It is the sovereignty of God over Antichrist that we see in uh, Daniel chapter 8. Lord, it may not be for us a very happy or joyful prospect to have to study such a career as the career of Antiochus or of the career of the one who shall come at the end. But dear Lord, we do thank thee that there's one thing we learn, that the, the Most High rules. And we would ask thee, dear Lord, that thou thyself just write into our hearts Oh, not just a, a hid knowledge, but a heart experience of thyself as the one who is absolutely sovereign. We're very thankful, Lord, that in these dark days, whatever might be happening, we do know one thing, that, Lord, thou hast everything in thy hands, and that in the end it will all be according to thy purpose and plan. Now, Lord, we commit it to thee, and we ask thee to write these things upon our hearts. We may not fully understand them. We may feel, Lord, at the time and now that there's not such a lot of point in spending time on them. But we pray that in years to come, we should never again go back to this chapter. This chapter and other chapters may have been so kept and retained in our hearts and memories by the Holy Spirit that when we come to need them, they shall be brought forth by him in such a way as to comfort our hearts and strengthen them. Lord, use these chapters to strengthen our dear brother Nee and others like him in concentration camps and elsewhere that they may know that the time of their redemption does draw near and that in thy sovereignty there is a time determined which is the end. We ask it in thy name.